Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Haven't seen you for a while. Thank you for rejoining us. And my thanks to Jason Morrison for the splendid work he did while I was away. Jason is a real pro. And as you would have found out, he does know his stuff. I had a gig in Paris, as you know, for the Rugby World Cup. I'll have something to say about that later. But for now, can I just say that that French stadium, Stade de France, with a magnificent playing facility, is an appalling public sporting centre. Apart from, pardon me, standing out in the rain forever to meet necessary security requirements, in the stadium itself, the wind blows around the seating as if from the Arctic Circle, so thousands got soaked and then froze in the stands. The best you could do with food was a hot dog. The steps to the nosebleed seats are dangerous. There are no, re no railings, whatever. The toilets ought to be condemned. If this is to be a showpiece for the Paris Olympics, someone needs to think again. Well, much has happened while I was away, but today, of course, the Melbourne Cup and Mark Zara became the first jockey to win the Melbourne Cup back-to-back -back since Glenn Boss won on Maccabi Diva 18 years ago. Zara is very much the man of the moment because he got off his Melbourne Cup winner from last year, Gold Trip, and onto the Caulfield Cup winner without a fight, and now without a fight has become one of only 12 horses to win the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double in the 163rd running of the great race, the Melbourne Cup. Chris Waller's horses finished second and third with Sulcombe. Very, very unlucky, the second horse. But perhaps the real story of the Cup was the fourth horse, Ash Run. Three years ago, this horse had a hole in his tendon so big that owners thought he'd never race again. On a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the worst, it was a solid eight. Now, tendon injuries are not life-threatening for a horse, but realigning the fibres is a long and arduous process requiring hundreds of kilometres of slow trotting over several months. It's said that the owners spent close to $250,000 rehabilitating Ashram, not with a view to racing the horse again, but rather so that their favourite animal could have a comfortable retirement. Today, the horse has come fourth in the Melbourne Cup with a cheque to the owners of $350,000 as my dearly departed friend Jim Killen would say, if that's not a good story, we are in trouble. Well, talking about trouble, trouble for those Australians with mortgages. The Reserve Bank, as you've heard, has lifted interest rates for the first time in five months. And of course, the, the banks will no doubt follow. Let's have none of this nonsense, though, that the new Governor, Michelle Bullock, has raised the interest rate. There is a board of eight on the Reserve Bank. She makes a recommendation, the board decides. Nonetheless, this puts real pressure on struggling mortgage holders, though I repeat, I've said this many times, no one should ever have imagined that interest rates would stay at two or 3%. There are many, many people watching this program who remember when interest rates were 20%. Today, 4.35 is the cash rate. Nonetheless, if you're talking about a $750,000 home loan, this will add $114 to the monthly interest bill. Put another way, since the RBA began hiking interest rates in May, the monthly repayments on a $750,000 loan have increased by $1,815 a month. 
So a family would have to find another $22,000 a year to service a $750,000 home loan. I'll have more to say about the Albanese government tomorrow, but for today, the general conclusion is, following on the catastrophe of the Voice campaign, their judgment is rubbish. You see, only this week, the Treasurer Chalmers, who is, I'm sorry, look, a veritable lightweight, this bloke, he was trying to jawbone the Reserve Bank, virtually suggesting there was no need to increase interest rates, even with an annual inflation figure of 5.4%. Now, the inflation rate that they're trying to come to is between 2 and 3%. The International Monetary Fund last week weighed in with its own advice to lift interest rates in order to ensure that inflation returns to the bank's target range of 2 to 3% by 2025. Chalmers is now telling state and federal governments to delay or axe infrastructure projects to review infrastructure spending because it's spending that is inducing inflation. But the most extravagant and wasteful spender is Chalmers' own government. Infrastructure projects are estimated across Australia to have blown out in costs by $33 billion. Now, infrastructure, infrastructure costs are one thing, and $33 billion, yes, is a lot of money, which indicates that government didn't know their stuff to start with. But in order to secure net zero emissions by 2050, because the Albanese government is going to perish on this issue, and they're going to do anything, everything imaginable and spend money to try to get to net zero, and they're prepared to spend trillions, not billions of dollars, and they're still living with the delusion that this will make Australia, in the Prime Minister's words, a renewable energy superpower. Oh, come on, Albo, who writes this crap for you? This madness will eventually go down with the voice as two of the Albanese government's most ludicrous proposals. Well, meanwhile, the government won an election telling everyone in the electorate they'd be better off under Labor. Well, the number of companies that collapsed in October increased by 43%. Many of these companies see their tax office debt beyond their capacity to pay. Many of these companies earned nothing during coronavirus. They were put out of business by government. How can you pay your tax debt if the government doesn't allow you to get on with the business of making a quid? There were 569 liquidation or administration appointments nationally, 569 in October, 43% more than in October last year. New South Wales had 237 company collapses, Victoria 138, a Victorian increase of 79%. Now behind every collapse are families who lose their source of income, employees who lose their jobs and government loses tax revenue. Anthony Albanese can trot around the world shaking hands with whomever he likes. But Australia today is not the Australia that Mr Albanese inherited. On too many fronts, we're going in the wrong direction. And of course, you'll hear about that on this program. I should say that with interest rates going up, are bank profits going to follow? The big four's full year combined earnings are reported to be a record Profits, 33 billion, 33 billion. The Commonwealth Bank, 10.2 billion. In profit over its full year to August, 10.2 billion. Westpac, 7.4. NAB, 7.8. ANZ, 7.6. Yet the Westpac boss, Peter King, says interest rates may even have to go higher. But the Westpac balance sheet is the strongest he's seen in 29 years at the bank. So he said, how does that make sense to the punter 
in Struggle Street. The banks get rich while you get poor. Our thoughts go out to that dreadful tragedy in the pub beer garden in the beautiful country, Victorian town of Dalesford on Sunday evening. A mother who once ran for state parliament was killed alongside her nine-year-old daughter and her partner when a car drove into a pub beer garden. The driver of a white BMW SUV will be interviewed by detectives following his expected release from hospital today. Police say he returned a negative breath test at the scene. They're investigating whether the man suffered a medical episode. But in Sydney, a day after his 13th birthday, young Braden Collier lay dead on a front lawn of a stranger's house. His best mate, Kane Bell, lay metres away from him, also dead. Two men who'd played surrogate big brother roles in their lives reportedly stepped over the two bodies and ran from the scene. Their Ford sedan had slammed into a telegraph pole in Ashcroft in Sydney's west at speed, splitting the car in two and throwing one of the boys' bodies from the car. Today, two men have been arrested at Wetherill Park. They've been taken to Liverpool Hospital under police guard for assessment of injuries allegedly sustained in the crash. But this is appalling stuff. As a friend of mine says to young drivers, two things will kill you. Parents, remind your kids of this. Two things will kill you, inexperience and speed. Two young boys are dead. Whatever punishment is meted out for this irresponsibility, their lives don't come back. Just one other thing about the Melbourne Cup. It's 40 years since Princess Diana and the now King Charles attended the Melbourne Cup in 1985. 40 years later, Lady Amelia and Lady Eliza Spencer, twins from Diana's brother, Charles Spencer, and his former model wife, Victoria Lockwood, were the Victorian Racing Club's ambassadors for the Melbourne Cup. I tell you what, they're good lookers. Of their aunt, they observed, She's left an undeniable mark on the world of style and fashion, which continues to be celebrated to this day. Well, an undeniable mark is something that Eddie Jones and Hamish McLennan have not left on Australian rugby, unless it is an indelible mark of failure. Jones, of course, is gone, but still saying defiantly he was happy with what he had done. While having lost seven in a row when he coached England and then was sacked, he now came here as the Messiah and won two out of nine, beating Georgia and Portugal. But the bloke who appointed him, the chair of Australian rugby, Hamish McLennan, is trying to hang on, self-indulgently saying that, oh, the move to spear him would cause more trouble for the game. You see, it's all about McLennan, the self-absorbed McLennan. Well, I recommend that he read the online comments to the story written yesterday about him in the Australian newspaper. Hundreds of them, all of them saying, go and go now. Interestingly, Sri Lanka have been knocked out of the World Cricket Cup. Very good side. In other words, like Australia and rugby, they didn't get to the playoff stage. Well, following the team's poor performance, the entire Sri Lankan cricket board has been sacked and replaced with an interim committee. That should happen to rugby. Tonight, a big cricket test for Australia. Who would have thought that would be said about Australia versus Afghanistan? but Afghanistan are breathing down our throats for a place in the last four of this World Cup, one day, 50 over World Cup. It'll all happen at Mumbai tonight. The Australian team though under Patrick Cummins has done outstandingly in recent matches. But one final sporting point to make, Storm Hunter, unknown to most Australians, has become the third Australian woman to hold the world number one doubles ranking. 
and the first in 16 years. She's 29 years of age. Sam Stozer was the last Australian to finish on top of the WTA Tours doubles rankings until Storm Hunter has reached that milestone yesterday. Number one in the world, 29 years of age. She was born in Rockhampton. There's another good story on Melbourne Cup Day. She was born Storm Sanders, married her partner Lachlan Hunter late last year. Plenty coming up. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. As you know, I have long spoken about a crisis in Western political leadership. If that so-called leadership can't now wake up, then it can't expect what we now know as Western civilization to survive. It is staggering that support for this terrorist outfit, Hamas, on university and college campuses and on city streets around the world, that such support for Hamas is both real and frightening. Hamas is classified as a terrorist organisation by Australia, America, the EU and Britain. It uses civilians as human shields. I read recently dramatic and barbaric evidence of what these Hamas terrorists have done and promised to continue to do. Now remember as I've said, there are protests all over the world in defence of this mob and in defiance of the values of Western civilization. Is Western political leadership equal to the challenge? On what I am seeing, the answer is no. Gemma Tognini wrote at the weekend, and I quote, a family of four, two young children, a boy and a girl, six and eight years old, they sat at their breakfast table and were made to watch as their father had his eyes gouged, gouged out in front of them. Then someone cut off their mother's breast. The same savages turned then to the little girl, the eight-year-old, and cut off her foot before turning to her little brother, just six years old. They sliced the fingers from his hand. Only then was the family killed. After the execution, the Hamas terrorists sat down and helped themselves to a meal." Unquote. And yet we've got these calls for ceasefire in the Hamas-Israel war. We have a preacher in southwest Sydney at a Muslim religious centre delivering a sermon calling on Muslims to wage jihad and objecting to calling Hamas and its barbarism massacres. Indeed, this dangerous so-called preacher is arguing from the pulpit that it's Israel which is guilty of terrorism. His exact words, having called the Australian Prime Minister a liar, quote, not long after Allah exposed his lies, when Albanese said Israeli has the right to defend itself when he labelled Hamas as terrorists, according to the preacher, that was a lie. He went on, when you, Western governments, start labelling Muslims as terrorists, you are pushing us into a corner. We say you are pushing us into a corner. You're creating a test for the national security system. We will not back down. Well, that bloke's wandering around the streets. Now, of course, Western governments don't label Muslims as terrorists, but we do label Hamas as terrorists, as do America, the EU and Britain. In Sydney at the weekend, posters appeared across the city's eastern suburbs and the CBD depicting Adolf Hitler removing a Benjamin Netanyahu mask, an image that inflicts maximum trauma on Sydney's Jewish community, many of whom are Holocaust survivors or descendants of Holocaust survivors. But again, the Jewish community worldwide has been facing daily acts of anti-Semitism and hatred, and this just takes it all to a new level. What is conveniently ignored is that Palestinians in Gaza hate Hamas and the oppression 
that this terrorist group visits upon them. Israel is trying to liberate the long-suffering Gazan population from cruel, oppressive and inhumane Hamas rulers. And this is best summed up simply by saying, we now face a clash between civilizations. Those who call for a ceasefire conveniently ignore the simple truth that Israel is saying Hamas must not get away with the slaughter it inflicted on 1,400 innocent Israelis, slashing them on October 7, slashing the throats of babies in front of their parents and taking hundreds as hostages. Israel is saying, as the civilised world should be saying, you won't be allowed ever to do these things again. As Doug Hurst of Chapman in the ACT writes, the message is simple, ruthless, violent and clear. If you treat us that way, we will retaliate. Negotiations, truces and peace agreements don't work with enemies like this. He wrote, this is not a struggle between equals, it's a clash of civilizations." unquote. Now remember, Hamas has rebuilt its arsenal with help from Iran. Hamas has attacked the Israeli army with explosive laden drones, anti-tank missiles and high impact rockets, the sort of weapons that have transformed the battlefield in Ukraine. And at the heart of Hamas's ability to respond is their long-standing relationship with Iran, which continues to support Palestinian militants with money and technical expertise. It's said that in the months leading up to October 7, hundreds of Hamas fighters went to Iran for military training. The reality is that Hamas and its allies are far better equipped to respond to an Israeli ground invasion today than they have been in the past. Its most potent defence may be its extensive tunnel network that runs beneath Gaza, just like an underground city, storing fighters, food, fuel, weapons, and since October 7, hostages. The tunnels neutralise any military advantage. The British Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has been criticised for describing these worldwide protests as hate marches. Those marches, aided by social media, offer an uncritical acceptance of the violent propaganda from terrorists and they're willing to attribute the worst possible motives to this tiny democracy, Israel, fighting for its survival. Confronted with the worst murder of Jews since the Holocaust, it's almost impossible to see a single slogan condemning Hamas. Any accusation against the Jews gains worldwide headlines. The Jews are accused of white supremacy, even though a majority of Israelis are non-white. Perhaps the marches have been inspired by the images of appalling suffering in Gaza that we're fed day and night. But is there just one Hamas supporter, one Palestinian militant supporter prepared to argue that Hamas precipitated this crisis? Israel withdrew in good faith from Gaza in 2005 but it continued to provide water, even though, as Jake Wallace-Simons reminds us, Hamas has neglected its water infrastructure, preferring to use its funds to construct terror tunnels instead. Israel has always allowed tens of thousands of Gazans through its borders to work each day. It's treated Gazans in hospital, even the relatives of terrorist leaders. As Jake Wallace-Simons writes, for this, its babies are mutilated. Jake Wallace-Simons, the author of the brilliant Israelophobia rightly argues that any reasonable observer can only conclude 
that Hamas is the principal cause of suffering in Gaza, oppressing its own people and leading them down the darkest of historical paths to jihadism. Now remember, jihadism is holy war, war. As the march at the marches, as he writes, quote, I've not seen any condemnation of this group, nor mention of the way Israelis have been butchered. Tellingly, he writes, if you'd been in a coma in the preceding weeks and saw the marches afresh, you'd draw the conclusion that Israel had unleashed unprovoked genocide of innocence rather than a defence of war on savagery. As Wallace Simons rightly says, look at the slogans that were shouted at the rallies, the behaviour of the mob from the river to the sea, we want to, well, obliterate the Jewish state from London to Gaza. More suicide bombs in our streets, please. Call for jihad, the chanting of ancient Quranic slogans recalling the massacre of the Jews. The ordinary people at these rallies, he writes, have been unwitting enablers. Much has been made of the fact that the marches have largely been peaceful. As he said, that's only because Jews and Israel's supporters were so intimidated, they cleared out of their way, unquote. We are talking here, Hamas, about a prescribed criminal organisation. That is, prescribed means forbidden, condemned. Yet we've got to suffer people in our streets and around the world supporting them. I thought that, by the way, was illegal. Why do the marches continue to take place? Where is this extremism condemned? It's not. It's not tolerated. I mean, the political leaders might be saying, well, we support Israel. What are they saying about the marches and the placards? This stuff is being tolerated. We should all care about the truth, however inconvenient or upsetting. Why are those who rush to condemn Israel silent in the face of the savagery of Hamas? And where we witness the tragic death of Palestinian civilians, is it entirely the fault of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, Iran and other terror groups? Let that never be forgotten and don't be afraid to say it. The words that's used is pogrom, P-O-G-R-O-M. It is the organised massacre of a particular ethnic group. Hamas has inflicted a pogrom on Israel. The Hamas Charter of 1988 calls for Islam to obliterate Israel. It is Hamas and its barbaric supporters who do not believe in Israel's right to exist. There is no two-state solution for this lot, no peaceful coexistence of Arabs and Jews. It's they who hide amongst civilians and store bombs in schools. As Alistair Heath has written, it's they who are responsible for forcing Israel to defend itself with an inevitable tragic impact on civilians. We must hold the terrorists morally responsible for every death, Israeli or Palestinian." Unquote. So why are we, the West, apologetic, equivocal in our support for Israel? Why does the pro-Israel alliance seem to be fraying? Why do we have even the American Secretary of State calling for humanitarian pause in the war? But there they were, protesters outside the White House on Saturday and around the world, quote, end the siege on Gaza now. It's unacceptable to allow for the loss of so many innocent lives and we cannot consider this a proportional conflict, said one protester. 
This is a massacre, a stain on our history. I cannot accept that my taxes are funding this. You see, the West is weak again in defending itself in the face of hard left activists, Islamist extremists and old fashioned racists. Barely a word about the worst murder of Jews since the Holocaust. What do we get? The extreme, irrational demonization of Israel. As Alistair Heath describes it, the new blood libel of our times and an attempt at inflaming passions and provoking war, terror, death and destruction. In this hysterical denunciation of Israel, the diabolical double standards, this reaction to Israel can only be explained as the current iteration of the world's oldest hatred. This is the latest manifestation of anti-Semitism, the latest barbaric act in meeting the terms of the Hamas Charter of 1988 calling for the obliteration of Israel. It began on October 7. Israel is merely determined that it should never happen again. If the cowardice of the West continues, the consequences for what we know as Western civilization will be more profound than we can possibly imagine. Think of our kids. What world will we be leaving them if this civilizational battle is not won? It is not alarmist to ask that if Western values are defeated, who will then be ruling the world? Look, we have to go back to this Israel issue. I have a very distinguished and highly educated friend seconded to medical service in Israel. He wrote to me last night and said, now you'll need a strong stomach to accommodate this, but this is exactly what he said to me in his latest text message. Alan, the horrors we've seen here are beyond description. I struggle to describe them. Appalling mutilations of pregnant women, children and babies, babies burnt alive in ovens, rape of women, rape of children, necrophilia, which as you know is sexual contact with dead bodies. He wrote, it is evil beyond comprehension. Women, children, babies, all kidnapped and they boast. He said the two I see of Hamas, of Hamas boasts that they want to do it again and again until every Jew has been slaughtered. What people here, he wrote, find even more incomprehensible is how this has been glorified and supported in so many countries, including Australia. He writes, personally, I'm extremely disappointed and disturbed by the vicious anti-Semitic behaviour in Australia, but not particularly surprised. He said, I experienced it at both the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the University of Melbourne. He said, but it has increased over the last 20 years. He writes, I thought it was mostly confined to the progressive left elite. But now he said it seems to have exploded to the mainstream. The Australian government is very weak, he said, and its weakness invites disaster for the country. That's for us. He said, many, many thanks for your support. You see, you've got people now like the former American President Obama, who on October 9, two days after the savagery of November 7, said in a 73-word statement that he supported Israel in dismantling Hamas. But October 23, two weeks ago, in a 1,130-word statement, Barack Obama called for Israeli restraint. 
In part of the interview on Pod Save America podcast, the former president says in part, what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. What is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable. He goes on, to get to the full truth, you then have to admit that nobody's hands are clean and that all of us are complicit to some degree. Barack Obama, what on earth are you talking about? I repeat what my distinguished surgeon has said. He can't describe the butchery of Hamas, the mutilation of pregnant women, children and babies. Babies burnt alive in ovens, Barack Obama, where are you? The rape of women and children, necrophilia. And the two I see of Hamas saying, they'll do it again and again until every Jew has been slaughtered. And Barack Obama is saying, we are all complicit. Then you've got Stanford University, one of the most distinguished university schools in the world. After Hamas massacred some 1,400 Israelis on October 7, Stanford students marched in support of the terrorist group, chanting 2468, smash the Zionist settler state. The disturbing thing is, the university leaders responded with a statement supporting, quote, academic freedom, which the university leaders said may include, quote, the expression of controversial and even offensive views. I beg your pardon. Hamas is a condemned terrorist organisation in America. Stanford's motto is, let the winds of freedom blow. But many administrators at that university wanted to blow only from the left. Clearly, cowardly university lecturers are afraid of provoking leftist professors and staff, just as we have cowardly political leaders now calling for a ceasefire. Well, Walt Secord is the Director of Public Affairs at the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, which is the premier public affairs organisation for the Australian Jewish community. And Walt joins me. Walt, these are disturbing developments. Here you've got a terrorist outfit, which on November 7 slaughtered at least 1,400 innocent Israelis, slashing the throats of babies in front of their parents and taking hundreds as hostages. Yet there are people marching in the streets in support of this terrorist organisation classified as a terrorist organisation by Australia, the US, the EU and Britain. How on earth do you explain that? I have no idea, Alan. It's mind boggling. Hamas in Australia is a prescribed terrorist organisation. It is a genocidal political movement. It is an organisation that oppresses its own people, but it also wants to eliminate the state of Israel. When you hear from river to the sea, that means the destruction of Israel. I don't see how anyone could support Hamas. Mm. Well, I don't either, but I mean, this is very, this has got momentum all around the world. The New York Post on Sunday carried, that's a couple of days ago, a story about chilling footage, yep. which showed that Hamas terrorists were operating out of two hospitals around Gaza City. Indeed, an Israeli Defence Force spokesman presented the videos, he wasn't making it up, yeah. showed the videos to reporters, which revealed that Hamas agents had used an underground tunnel entrance at the Sheikh Hamad Hospital, an yeah. Indonesian hospital, and the Hamas agents opened fire at Israeli forces from the medical centre. Now, Walt, only people with a hatred of Israel and the Jewish people could fail to condemn a terrorist outfit 
operating from within a hospital so that if Israeli forces were to root out these terrorists, innocent and sick people would be collateral victims. Absolutely, Alan. And I'll tell you what the most disgusting thing is that Hamas uses its own people as human shields. I can tell you one thing. Hamas, on October the 7th, one month ago today, started this, and there's going to be a difficult, long process. But I tell you, Israel will finish this. Israel must dismantle Hamas, and it must also free the people of Gaza who are living under this tyranny. Could you imagine what government uses its own citizens as human shields, hospitals, mosques, school children? Absolutely disgusting. Well, it is. And what, what annoys me in all of this is this argument about free Palestine. Does someone understand that the Palestinians living in Gaza hate Hamas as much as those who are their victims? Can I, can I tell you about Hamas? So 2005, Israel walked out of Gaza. The people who have been ruling Gaza since 2006, 2007 have been Hamas. There have been not elections since then, and people are living under the, tongue, under the thumb, under the tyranny mm. of Hamas. Now, Hamas is an organization that has banned unions, and it actually throws homosexuals off rooftops. Now, this is a disgusting political movement. It's a genocidal movement, and it's got no respect for Western values. No, none whatever, none whatever. That's why I say this is a civilizational issue. We lose this one, and we just wonder where the world will finish up. Now, the Israeli Defence Force are saying they've exposed a tunnel mm -hmm. under the hospital, and now Israeli soldiers are being shot at from within the hospital. Now, Hamas built this Indonesian hospital yep. to disguise its underground terror infrastructure, and Hamas officials are reportedly using fuel reserves yeah. that belong to the hospital, and humanitarian groups have warned that fuel desperately needed for civilians Absolutely. in Gaza is running out for the medical facilities because this mob are using it. Now, Walt, Israel's been condemned from humanitarian groups for airstrikes near hospitals, while Israeli Defence Forces say that Hamas has a 300-mile-long tunnel network running underneath hospitals. What on earth is the world to make of this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Israel is the only army in the world that sends out text messages, leaflets, telling people to leave areas that they are going to bomb. Now, that in fact compromises its own military exercises. This is extraordinary. Israel wants to minimize civilian deaths. But when you have a government, Hamas, which puts its own citizens in, the, in harm's way as human shields and stops them from evacuating to the south, Israel warned them, gave them 24 hours notice that they were going to do military exercises in the north. Again, what government, what army warns other combatants that they're going to attack a certain point? But could that mean that some of these terrorists would escape Absolutely. Gaza Absolutely. I mean, and plant themselves somewhere else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, this is a genocidal political movement that wants to see the eradication of Israel yeah. and all Jews around the world. Yes, it's part of the charter of Hamas Absolutely. to obliterate Israel, part of the charter. But so these people marching in the streets all around the world in front of the White House, do they understand any of this? What are they on about? I saw yesterday in the Australian Federal Parliament, yep. the Greens walk yep. out. Absolutely di disgusting. Yeah. That was an absolute theatrical 
exercise, chanting in the parliament, free, free Palestine. That was absolutely unacceptable. Mm. Now, there's bipartisan support from Dutton and from Albanese on this. I want to see that continue, and the Jewish community welcomes that bipartisan support. But see, well, on this business about free, free Palestine, that is not relevant to this issue. We are talking about a terrorist organisation which brutalised savagely over 1,700 innocent people. This is about Hamas. We'll deal with the Palestine issue later, surely. Yeah. I mean, I've said this is a clash of civilizations. Yeah. If Western leaders go down the road of Western academics and the so-called elites, yeah. and succumb to all these calls for a ceasefire, surely Western civilization itself is under siege. Alan, I've seen some of the footage, and I can never unsee that footage. In fact, when I think about that footage, it just, it just completely unsettles me. In fact, yeah. it is so disturbing and so barbaric that I wished that I'd never looked at it. Yeah. That is how graphic and disturbing I the know. footage is. Animals do not do that to each other. It is just extraordinary, the barbaric, yes. the barbary that we saw on October yes. the 7th. Yes. I mean, Boris Johnson, now whatever else might be said about Boris Johnson, is a man of immense scholarship. So he understands history, he's read widely. And he said yesterday that protesters marching in, quote, free Palestine rallies across the world were condoning Hamas atrocities and it was not other nations' business to tell Israel how to defend itself. Now, Walt, surely that is true. Uh, absolutely. Can I, can I make an observation about Boris Johnson and also former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, their visit to Israel? The Jewish community in Australia and around the world appreciates that gesture, standing in solidarity with the Jewish community at times when they see people protesting on the streets in support of Hamas. Mm. So a gesture like Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson going to Israel, going to the kibbutz where people were slaughtered and standing there and expressing their yes. condemnation of anti-Semitism. Well, they saw the kibbutz. They saw the kibbutz and the damage that had been done. I mean, to Scott Morrison's great credit, he said he does not support a ceasefire. He said, quote, do you provide a pause and a ceasefire to allow Hamas to regroup and get themselves in a position to resist even further. Scott Morrison said, this is the play from Hamas and we have to be careful not to be suckered into it. Now, White, surely, well, this is as obvious as the nose on your face. I mean, both Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison were visiting this kibbutz in southern Israel. 57 people there were believed to have been killed, 17 taken hostage. Scott Morrison described the kibbutz as a place of innocence that, quote, has now been desecrated beyond comprehension. Walt, when are these marches going to do a bit of homework? I don't think, Alan, it's a sad situation. I don't think we can educate the people in these marches. This is about hatred and a, and a lack of understanding of history and a failure to research. As you said earlier in your comments, you referred to Hamas's charter. The charter is the elimination of the Jewish state and Jews. Mm. Can't be any clearer than that. Yeah. But I can make an observation when you referred to the, to the ceasefire. A ceasefire? Ceasefires only occur when there's a prospect of peace. A ceasefire means that Hamas will be able to regroup, rearm, and reposition it. itself mm -hmm. to launch further attacks. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I mean, Scott Morrison made this point about that kibbutz. He said, the bullet holes and bloodstains are still visible. 
on the walls of the homes in the kibbutz weeks after the attack with clothes and other personal belongings strewn across the streets. I mean, I don't understand what could inspire marches in defence of this barbarism. Boris Johnson said, and I quote, since that appalling massacre of October 7, you're seeing a kind of, a kind of fog descend, a moral fog. Absolutely. And he said, I just want to remind people of the absolute barbarism of what took place and to make it clear that Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, just, uh, well, what do those comments mean to Jews living in fear, frightened to identify themselves, schools with security guards, yep. members of the Jewish community, even in our own country, afraid to reveal themselves. What have you learnt about what Jews in Australia are currently facing? I can tell you one thing, Alan, the Australian Jewish community is pulling together and attendances at synagogues are at record levels. But the sad part is that parents are making decisions not to have their children wear school uniforms. Jewish men who wear head covering put baseball caps over them. And people who wear Stars of David, Magen Davids around their necks, tuck them inside. Now we've seen a spike in anti-Semitism. Earlier today, I had a coffee with the Executive Council of Australian Jury's Research Director, Julie Nathan, who logs and documents anti-Semitism in Australia. She said there's been a spike in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, and Adelaide. And Jews are, are worried, they're changing their behavior, mm -hmm. but they're also pulling together in strength. And you're seeing spontaneous expressions drawing attention to the 220 hostages. Let's not forget this, there are still 220 yes. hostages being held by Hamas. Mm, it's appalling, I just can't. I mean, sometimes you can't find words to yep. make any sense of this. Boris Johnson, I'm coming back to him, he was asked about the massive pro-Palestine rallies that have broken out since the massacre. Now, Walt, I think I must be missing something because I don't know what pro-Palestine rallies, as I've said before, have got to do with the savagery of Hamas. Mm. While this terrorist outfit in Gaza submits Palestinians themselves That's to the right. most miserable of lies lives. I mean, how do these marches, even if they believe in a Palestinian state, how can they turn a blind eye to the savagery and brutality of Hamas, even towards their own people in Gaza? Alan, you answered your own question. How can they not separate? How can they, how can they decouple Hamas from this? Yes. When they're marching, they are also marching in support of Hamas. Definitely. Israel has to dismantle Hamas for the safety of the region, for the safety of its own people. I tell you, if an attack like this ha happened in Australia, you would not hear politicians urging the Prime Minister or the Premier to show restraint. How can you show restraint when 1,400 of your citizens Quiet. decapitated, babies murdered in front but of how, their own... how are these marches allowed? I thought protesting in defence of terrorism was a crime. Hamas. How the hell are these things allowed? Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation under Australian law. Prescribed means condemned. It's not allowed. Condemned yeah. under Australian law. So how on earth are people allowed in the streets to protest in defence of these people? I mean, Boris Johnson says, I would say to everybody marching across the world right now, this is Boris, mm. supposedly in support of Free Palestine, that what they are doing, whether they intend it or not, is condoning the brutality and the murder that was conducted by those Hamas terrorists. And he said, this is the key point of Boris Johnson, 
and which, by the way, they would do again. Oh. Walt, this is the existential challenge the free world faces. Do we surrender to Hamas, Hezbollah, militant Islamism or Iran? And if those forces prevail in Israel, what are the consequences for the free world? Absolutely, Alan. Hamas has to be dismantled and we just cannot tolerate fundamentalism in our society and we cannot find in the Middle East. It is a battle that will go beyond the borders. Definitely, definitely. So it has, Hamas has to be dismantled. Definitely. It's been a month. It's going to be a long process, but I think Israel will be successful in removing Hamas. And after the Hamas, that will be another challenge. What will occur? What will be established in Gaza after mm. this? Mm. Again, lots of, we'll, we'll need lots of cooperation internationally. Yes, and will we get that cooperation amongst weak Western leadership? And Boris Johnson, I come back to him because he's a man of immense scholarship, Johnson, widely read. He speaks seven languages, Boris Johnson, French, Italian, German, Spanish, Latin, ancient, Greek, and English. So with an understanding of history, Boris Johnson said, when you have a crime on this scale, mm -hmm. and when there is the possibility of it happening again, I don't think it's the business of the world to tell Israel to stop. He said, be under no illusions about the savagery, the sadism and the lack of humanity of the Hamas terrorists. The Walt Secord, yesterday we had, as you said, these Green senators walking out of question time in Canberra over the Australian government's refusal to back a ceasefire. Are these people, they can't be dumb, so are they filled with hatred? Unfortunately, They've shown themselves to be friends of the enemies of Israel and the Jewish people. Well, that's the enemy of freedom. I mean, Israel's the, only, Israel's the only democratic outfit in the Middle East. Absolutely, Alan. The only democracy in the Middle East. Now, David Rich is a research fellow at the London Centre mm -hmm. for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. He has said that anti-Semitism has exploded worldwide. And he said, I think we shouldn't underestimate the amount of denial that there is out there about what Hamas actually did on October 7. So Walt, David Rich is right, isn't it, when he argues a lot of the language of the anti-Israel protests revolves around the denial of Israel's right to exist and that the way for this conflict to be resolved is just Israel disappear. And as you said, that's what it means. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That means there should be no Israel. How can any democratically elected entity embrace any of that? I have no idea how the Greens could stand up in the federal parliament and express solidarity with Hamas. The Hamas constitution, Hamas says that it, quote, rejects any alternative to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. That means the elimination of the state of Israel. Mm. Just before you go, because I know you, uh, you may remember Walt, I think was quite an outstanding member of the Labor opposition in the New South Wales Parliament. And I used to speak to him often in that capacity. Where does the Labor Party stand and how compromised are they when South West Sydney, for example, has a significant Muslim population, 25% in Watson, 32% in Blackson, 14% in McMahon, seats held by Tony Burke, Jason Clare, 
Reverend Chris Bowen. So I ask you, what does Penny Wong, the foreign minister, mean? And I think Penny, by and large, has done an excellent job. But what does it mean when she's now saying, when friends like Australia urge Israel to exercise restraint and protect civilian lives, it's really critical that Israel listens. Uh, well, what's that mean? Let well, Hamas regroup? No, it doesn't mean that. But I tell you one thing, Israel does respect civilian lives and it does want to minimise civilian deaths. And it wants to see peace in the region and it wants to see a two-state solution. Now, I've seen a drift over the last 10 years in the Labour Party, but also I'll give credit where credit's due. Anthony Albanese and New South Wales Premier Chris Minns have been very supportive of the Jewish community and been very strong during this current crisis. Well, so, are you confident they'll stay strong? Well, I hope so. The, the, all indications are that they are. So you've got Ed Husick, who's the industry minister and the minister for early childhood education, Anne Ali, mm -hmm. both Muslims, talking about Gazans being collectively punished by Israel. Yeah. What? I, I, disagree. I, I disagree with those statements. But again, the premier and the prime minister have been strong and I hope they'll stay the course. I feel that they'll stay the course. It's going to be a long process, one month in, but Hamas started this, and Israel, mindful of civilian deaths, will end this, and Hamas will be dismantled. Well, I hope you're right, but it's going to be a long journey, but it's a journey that Israel needs to be supported in by the free world. But this is an existential crisis. This is a clash of civilizations. Make no mistake about that. Which civilization do you want to prevail? Walt, thank you for your time tonight. I'm very grateful. That was Walt Secord, who is the Director of Public Affairs at the Australian, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, which is the premier public affairs organization for the Australian Jewish community. Well, to our friends across the ditch, I can understand the mourning that has overtaken you in New Zealand following the dramatic loss in the final of the Rugby World Cup. But I say to my New Zealand friends, stand tall. Your team was magnificent in defeat. In a dreadful refereeing decision, New Zealand finished with 14 men. Their outstanding captain, Sam Kane, has to live forever with the knowledge that he was sent off in a World Cup final, only to see his side go down 12-11. He'll have to appear before a World Rugby Judiciary panel. It's most probably like the rest of World Rugby Administration, something of a joke. After all, it was World Rugby Administration that pitted the top four teams in the world, South Africa, New Zealand, France and Ireland, in the top half of the draw. Absurd. Just like the sending off of Sam Kane. I would say to Sam Kane, Sam, hold your head high. You've made a remarkable contribution to New Zealand rugby. And in the wake of your disappointment, you conducted yourself with real dignity. I said all along that I thought South Africa would win the World Cup because of one man, Andre Pollard. And so it was. It was Pollard's goal kicking alone that got South Africa into the final. And it was Pollard's kicking all 12 points that won them the World Cup when New Zealand missed a few shots at goal. They are worthy winners, I have to say. And I'd love to see the captain of South Africa sing the anthem over and over and over again. I should have provided some pictures of that for you tonight. It is unbelievable. But as you, Sam Kane, I understand you'll be lost to New Zealand rugby as you head off to Santori in Japan. But go with the knowledge that you have the respect of those in the rugby community who know just a little bit about the game. Well, of course, politically, the New Zealand election was as tight as the Rugby World Cup final. 
It was clear that the result of the October ballot would take some time until special votes and overseas votes were counted. They represent 20.9% of the total. Now, a special vote, and that's what they're called over there, there were over 600,000 of them. That's a vote made by someone who can't cast an ordinary vote because the voter may be on the day outside their electorate or the voter might be overseas or the voter's not on the printed electoral roll but believes he or she should be. The voter might be ill, can't get to a polling place and so on. So there were over 600,000 of them and 78,000 overseas voters. Now that the counting is over, the new Prime Minister, Chris Luxon, won't be able to secure a majority without the support of Winston Peters, New Zealand First. Chris Luxon says he'll form a coalition and that he's talked about the goodwill and the good faith of all three party leaders. Winston Peters, to whom, as you know, I've spoken often on this program because the 78-year-old had advice for Australians in that divisive referendum we've just endured. Winston Peters has argued that the Ardern nonsense of co-governance has to end and that place names should be returned to what they were in English. Now, there's no doubt that the new coalition has a massive task on its hands, unscrambling the mess left by the Ardern-led Labor government. Unfortunately, Winston Peters has to live with political truth that it was his support that enabled Ardern to become Prime Minister in the first place. In 2017, Labor had only won 46 seats. The National Party then had won 56. Ardern became, with Winston Peters' support, the world's youngest female head of government at the age of 37. I'd venture to say she knew absolutely nothing. Yet in October 2020, the Ardern led Labor to a landslide victory, gaining an overall majority of 65 seats. The New Zealand voters still hadn't woken up. Well, they certainly woke up on October 14 last. Labor was smashed, finishing with 34 seats, not 65, and only 26.9% of the vote. The Nationals, 48 seats, with 38% of the vote. Their preferred coalition partner, ACT, ACT, allegedly committed to cutting waste from government and returning that money to New Zealand. Let's see, let's see where that ends up. But they finished up with 11 MPs, so that a coalition of the Nationals and ACT would only have 59 seats in a 123-seat parliament. Enter Winston Peters, who now holds eight seats. He is the ultimate political phoenix repeatedly rising from the ashes. But the key here is that the leaders of the two parties supporting Luxon, Winston Peters and the 40-year-old David Seymour, educated at Auckland Grammar with an engineering degree, both leaders, Peters and Seymour, agree that so-called co-governance, that is shared governance with Maori tribes should be ditched and the spread of the Maori language in public life including the naming of government departments in Maori, should be pulled back. The National Party went to the election promising tax relief and raising the pension age to 67. Winston Peters believes that debt-ridden New Zealand can't afford tax relief, but he also opposes raising the pension age. Importantly, the three parties in the new government agree to a tougher approach on law and order. Luxon is undeniably New Zealand's most inexperienced Prime Minister, only elected to Parliament in 2020, previously as CEO of Air New Zealand. But this could be the coalition that New Zealand needs. An inexperienced Prime Minister, yes, but the wily Winston Peters, a veteran politician of more than 40 years, who has been talking since all along, with the young and very promising David Seymour from ACT, 
And this gives new hope to New Zealanders because nothing could be worse than the appallingly woke Ardern and the mess she's left behind. And remember, Ardern now has a damehood for her trouble. Dame Jacinda Ardern, the ultimate insult to New Zealanders who simply say, dame or no dame, good riddance. Well, from the brutality in the Middle East to something closer to home. Yesterday was to, be, was to be the day when, according to the New South Wales government and its Environment Minister Penny Sharp, the aerial shooting of Brumbies in the Kosciuszko National Park was to begin. The aerial shooting of feral horses. My understanding is that no horses have yet been shot in the last 24 hours, but can you think of anything more barbaric than shooting these animals from the air? They're aiming to shoot 500 horses. The carcasses rot and find their way into the waterways, which just happen to feed Canberra's water supply. But can you imagine that this is in an attempt to reduce the number of feral animals in the National Park? Because we're told that a fragile alpine ecosystem of native flora and fauna is at risk. But I wonder if I missed something. You shoot 500 horses. You don't shift the carcasses. You leave them there to feed the feral pigs and the feral dogs. And you ignore the feral deer and the feral foxes and the feral goats and the feral rabbits. But you go after the horses with unproven numbers. Now, of course, when government says they must reduce the horse numbers from 19,000 to 3,000 by 2027, I have to say my information is the numbers are made up. One bloke who's forgotten more about this issue than all the bureaucrats and politicians, many of whom have never been near a horse, is Peter Cochrane. He's the former state member for the seat of Monero for 10 years. He's a Vietnam veteran, he's a farmer. He's been very strong on the issue of national parks that the government seems to create willy-nilly and then refuses to properly maintain them. Peter Cochrane has also opposed the creation of new national parks for that reason, and he's backed the four-wheel drive lobby to access existing ones. Now remember, in the last bushfires, firefighters couldn't access the parks and even if they did, the maintenance of the parks was so bad that they then couldn't navigate their way through them. Now, Peter Cochrane runs commercial horse treks through the Kosciuszko National Park. The former National Party leader, John Barillaro, introduced legislation in 2018, commonly referred to as the Brumbies Bill, to protect the heritage value of the Brumby. The legislation allowed, quote, less sensitive unquote areas in Kosciuszko to be set apart for the Brumbies. At the time, John Barillaro argued that Brumbies were, quote, part of the cultural fabric and folklore of the high country. He said, nothing is more synonymous with the Australian outdoor lifestyle than the Brumby, from the man from Snowy River to the integral role that the Snowy Mountains bush horses played in the Australian light horse campaign during World War I, unquote. Let's bring in Peter Cochran here because he knows this scene backwards. We might be battling with a picture, but we'll hang on to him as long as we can and we've got him. So Peter, thank you for your time. Look, before we start talking about shooting feral horses and the barbaric way it's likely to be done, shouldn't we be verifying rather than guessing how many there are in the Kosciuszko National Park? Where do these numbers come from? Which from all my reading are described as the best estimate currently over 18,800 wild horses. What do you make of that? 
Alan, the, there is no science involved in this. The science has been corrupted by the political agenda. There's no question about that. And the, the numbers are fabricated to suit that political agenda. This is, a, this is a philosophical thing that the National Parks and Wildlife Service and the Minister, the left wing of the Labor Party are following. It's all to do with the colonisation of Australia and the image that we presented to the world at the opening of the Olympics in 2000. This is the image of the man from the Snowy River, that cultural history which we're proud of and the mountain people are proud of. It's it's about the light horse. It's about these other issues which which surround the, the, the cultural history of Australia. And so there is no science in this at all which has been verified. The science has all been questioned. It's been fabricated by the by the agenda of the National Parks and Wildlife Service. And you are quite correct. They'd be a damn sight better off looking after the feral animals which are damaging the park, the likes of the dogs, the deer, pigs, and you know, the, the foxes and all these other things that are destroying the National Park, not to mention two extensive fires, one in 2003 and the other one in 2020, which absolutely destroyed the mountain ash and a lot of the very yeah. precious uh, yeah. vegetation in the mountains. Alan, these people are, are corrupting the process of good management. Yes, I mean, destroyed, let me just make, add to Peter's comment, destroyed the national parks simply because they were created and there was no proper management. You couldn't get in to even look after them and service them. So, of course, you can't have a fire without fuel and the fuel was on the floor and away it went. You see, every time I look at these numbers, they somehow increase. I mean, we're now told that the 18,800 is a 30% increase from the 14,380 counted in 2020. Who counted them, Peter, and how did they count them? Well, they've, the, the methodology they've used, which is known as the, the Cairns method, uh, has been questioned by other statisticians, people who do this for a living. And it's, it's quite evident that the, the statistics that have been gathered are gathered to meet an agenda. And uh, what's happened That's is right. that they've done a, a count of the horses that are there and extrapolated the numbers they've seen uh, to extend right to extend right across the national park. Well, the fact is that there's le the horses occupy less than 15% of the Kosciuszko National Park. Uh, and if you extrapolate the numbers you see in that area, yes, you'd come up with 20,000 or 30,000. But but that's not the case. The, the horses only occupy point. a very small that's section very, of the horse, very predominantly around point. areas which was which was grazed for 160 years, mm. where there's where there's not there's power lines, 330 KB power lines, not to mention the Kyandra Goldfields that operated in the 1870s, extensive excavations, and, you know, this is the sort of thing that where see, the horses are roaming. See, this bloke knows and, what he's talking it's, about. It's, yeah, you know what you're talking about. That's down. a very valid point you've made. So the horses occupy 15% of the National Park. So basically what Peter's saying is, oh, well, if there are this number of horses in 15% of the park, how many horses must there be in 100% of the park and you'll come up with 18,000, 20,000, 25,000? I mean, so there is no basis for saying, is there, that the numbers in Kosciuszko are, quote, rising steadily and hence we need this so-called aerial culling. I mean, didn't the Barilara legislation of 2018 provide for, quote, less sensitive areas in Kosciuszko to be set aside for Brummies? Has that happened? Yes, the areas were set aside, designated areas to protect uh, certain um, herds and the DNA have been done of these herds by a very um, enthusiastic group of volunteers. Uh, the DNA is representative of horses which uh, 
are directly connected with those who went to the First World War and the Transvaal and uh, the, in the Boer War. So these are these are an important institution in our history, Alan. They're connected to yes. some of the, the, the most valuable uh, history, a cultural history that we have. Australia has a very shallow white man cultural history and we need to protect it. And we're proud of it, so much proud of it that we used this image in the opening of the Olympic Games in 2000 yeah. yes. and people applauded it. Yes. And here we are today with the government that's now going out to slaughter the very animals which we lauded across the world. Good on you. I mean, if the park is home to very fragile ecosystems, as we're told, why is all the focus on the brumbies and not the feral deer and the pigs and the foxes and the goats and the rabbits and the dogs? I mean, if the shooting well, of the 500 horses... Ecosystem. Uh, if the shooting yeah. of 500 yeah. horses is to occur, are the carcasses just left to rot so there's more feed for the pigs and the dogs? Exactly, Alan, and that's one of the great threats to the surrounding landholders, and that is that the, the carcasses are being left there, and, um, you know, you can ride through the park now and there's rotting carcasses in the waterways, the stench is unbearable, and they're asking people to go up there on their holidays. I mean, really, what the hell do they think they're doing? At, at the peak season, and not only right. is, it, is it distressing to the people of, who are going to visit there, but they've, they've activated this program at a time when the mares are foaling. So not only are they shooting the mares, but the foals are orphaned and left to wander about until the wild dogs kill them. That's right. So, again, it's not only feeding the dogs and, and the, all this. This is such a corruption of good process, Alan. Absolutely. And they're not listening. And, Absolutely. and I'm told that the director... The director, Atticus Fleming, I'm told, flew out of Australia on Saturday to go somewhere for a holiday, I understand. I mean, how could you possibly do that on the eve of one of the most barbaric acts that government has ever activated in the history of Australia? Good on you. Just repeating that point, you see, anyone who knows anything about horses, whether they're thoroughbreds or whatever, that this is the foaling season. So what Peter said, we shoot the mothers and leave the foals. They've got no mother, no milk, no nothing. So the foals then are just left to be killed by wild dogs. Peter, no government should be allowed to get away with this. They shouldn't, Alan, and you, you would rely on the RSPCA at this time to come forward and take action against the government, but they're not to be seen. And, and we're told that the RSPCA's ha just had a huge increase in their government funding. And of course, the suspicion is yeah. that there is a link between this yep. additional funding that yep. they've received and the yep. fact that they're not acting against the government yep. in the event of them shooting these horses. That's so, it. you That's know, it. we we want inquiry. We want inquiry into this. I mean, it needs to be exposed. If there's corruption there, and an undue pressure being put on the RSPCA, we need to know about it. The whole damn community knows about it because mm. people very generously give to the RSPCA, and they'd like to think that the money that they're giving. Is going to a worthy cause. Well, it's not at the moment. They're and not that's doing a, their bit. Yeah, and if this is not a cause for the RSPCA, what is? I mean, if the numbers are disputed, Peter, shouldn't we first determine what it is we're trying to achieve? Well, th that's right. And and interestingly, Alan, that I I would say that the Brumbies, in fact, are an asset to the national park because if you look at the history of the fire regime in the Kosciuszko National Park. The area that which is least burnt in 2003 and 2020 is the areas where the Brumbies are greatest in number. That's in it. other words, an overlay of the numbers of horses in the Kosciuszko National Park and the areas that were not burnt in both yes. those tragic fires yes. uh, is similar. So That's that right. you've got 
They had grazed. Um, they had grazed. They had grazed. They'd removed it, the fuel. Exactly. I mean, and, I mean, and the so argument is that's animals. right. They'd remove the fuel. I mean, wild horses were told disturb vegetation. This is what the lefties are saying, and they compete with native animals for food. Well, I would have thought, isn't Peter that true of the wild deer and the pigs and the goats and the dogs? And if the argument is that wild horses cause damage to water courses, are we meant to believe, or are we just bone ignorant? If carcasses are left to rot and feed their way into waterways, doesn't this damage the water supply to Canberra? Of course it does, and uh, Senator Pocock should be well aware that if his water's tasting a little different in the next few days, that he'll be drinking the effluent off the rotting carcasses of Brumbies, which he's agreed to having shot. So, you know, there's some justice, some karma in there, Alan. We can always live in hope that May, yes. Maybe he, he will get a taste in there that might remind him of the folly of what he's done. If, if all this was to start yesterday and it hasn't, what do you think is the reason for the delay? I understand that there's, there's thunderstorms uh, over to the west of where they were to shoot today. Not only that, uh, there's some very brave, or may have, some would say stupid, people that are up there at the moment and who've moved into the areas where the horses were to be shot I mean, some of these people have been campaigning for 20 years, Alan. This is this is this is not something that's going to go away. These people, the mountain people, will not give up. And uh, you know, I can go back to the days when uh, cattle were confiscated by government of the day, and the the, the democratic system was bastardised by by uh, a liberal government at that time, where they confiscated a thousand head of cattle and charged the landholders ten dollars a head to get them back, which was the equivalent of about a three-bedroom house in value at that time. So. You know, this is the second time where government's process yeah. of democracy has been bastardised by people with a political agenda which is ideologically driven. Absolutely right. Just before you go, who is it in the state government's wild horse management plan who says that this aerial shooting is done in a humane way? We, we, we can't find anybody that's, uh, apart from Steve Wan, who has uh, been backing this ever since the election. He's been backing aerial shooting, and uh, he obviously knows absolutely nothing about it And uh, from the comments he's made, but he may, he knows a, a fraction more than the Premier does. We've heard his interviews, and he knows absolutely nothing. Mm. And the problem is they're being driven by the bureaucracy. I mean, Atticus That's Fleming, it. who's the director in charge of all of this, is the person who's driving it, and uh, you'd have to question his judgment as to whether he's prepared to go ahead and implement this shooting program without verifying the numbers. The numbers are blatantly wrong. And anybody that lives there, and I ride through this country, Alan, five days a week. I know it like the back of my hand. I know every damn horse up there just about. And there are nowhere near the numbers they're talking about. They'd be lucky to 3,000 horses there. And that's coincidentally the figure that's mentioned in the Barrelow legislation, the Brumby Bill, yes, that they allowed for a sustainable number of 3,000 horses to be left in the park uh, as part of the cultural history of Australia, and the bill acknowledges, and so does his second reading speech, acknowledge the fact that these horses are an, impart, an important part of our cultural history. Absolutely. Just before you go, what's happened to Brumby running, where the wild horses used to be roped in and broken in? I mean, that's been done for 150 <laughs> years. 150 years. <laughs> Alan, you can't write this sort of script. It was the National Parks and Wildlife Service that banned Brumby running in the first place, hence the numbers grew. If they'd left the locals to manage the situation in the first place and, and ongoing and with a, with a, a good management plan uh, involving the locals, we would not be dealing with this issue today and we certainly wouldn't be involved in the massacre of all of these horses leaving foals to rot 
and and lost and eaten by dogs. I mean, this is just and the most barbaric Awful. thing you so can where, imagine where, where a, a government ever doing. Where are the Liberal opposition in New South Wales? I mean, there's an outfit called the Sustainability Brumby Group, which argues the state government's count is seriously inflated. In other words, there aren't as many Brumbies as the government estimates. Many are saying that there should be a fresh count using infrared technology and drones. Where is the Liberal opposition here? Well, to the credit of Bronnie Taylor and Wes Fang and, and others in the upper house and uh, also the Animal Justice Party, I mean, these people have been speaking out against this in the upper house uh, and also in the estimates committees, they've been speaking out and, and pleading with government to, to undertake a correct count. Not only that, to be scientific and genuinely scientific with, with the management of the park, not only horses, Alan, this is to do with fire, this yes, is to do with fire, weed control, yes. this is to do with the management of the water. Yep. These issues are being poorly managed in the in the Kosciuszko National Park, and I've been saying this for 50 years mm. that the management of the park is based on ideological ideological um, agenda rather than a scientific agenda. If the science was accurate, they wouldn't be managing the park, and the failures wouldn't be occurring that are occurring now. Absolutely, Peter. Great stuff. We've spoken before, and we'll speak again. I mean, thank you for your time, and I hope your efforts are not in vain. Yeah. But I repeat, the first task is to have. Min's government, Chris Min's, come on, have accurate and provable figures about how many Brumbies there are in the park and don't start telling anybody in New South Wales, Chris, that there's anyone in Macquarie Street who knows more about this than the bloke I've just spoken to, Peter Cochran. No one. Have Alan, thanks why very much for your ongoing support. Not at all. I mean, well, why don't we talk to this bloke and find out what's going on? He sees it every day. Anyway, we'll keep you posted, but the notion that shooting animals from the air and leaving carcasses to rot hardly fits surely with any argument that such a practice is humane. The Minister Penny Sharp says, there is clear evidence that aerial shooting done well provides the best animal welfare outcomes. Penny, these are just words. You give us the evidence. Well, look, before we go tonight, while I was away, the Labor Party, and I venture to say a large slice of politically aware Australians would have expressed profound grief at the passing of two iconic figures within the Labor Party. One with a distinguished upfront public record, the other a remarkable, unpretentious and mostly silent supporter of the Labor Party who became a de facto architect of its success. The first, Bill Hayden, a man who rose from virtually nowhere to become Governor General of Australia and could have been Prime Minister. Having reformed the Labor Party following the collapse of the Whitlam government, Bill Hayden believed he was on the cusp of becoming Prime Minister, but the party believed they wanted to make victory in the 1983 election a certainty. Bill Hayden was controversially pressured to relinquish the leadership. Bob Hawke became Prime Minister. Bill Hayden went on to serve as Foreign Minister from 1983 to 1988, and then surprised the nation by agreeing to become Queen Elizabeth II's representative in Australia as Governor General. Bill Hayden grew up with no silver spoon in his mouth. It was a difficult childhood, a wonderful mother and a contrary and sometimes violent father. Bill, the police force, joined the police force because in those days in Queensland, every policeman received an adult wage. The young Bill would come home and put his wage on the table. His father was Irish American. He'd been a merchant seaman. The mother worked as a piano tuner. Bill Hayden went to Brisbane State High School, but left at 15. His father died in 1953. Bill had joined the police force to support his mother. He served for eight years there, studying economics and politics part-time at the University of Queensland. 
He won the federal seat of Oxley in 1961 at 28 years of age, ousting a Liberal minister. When Gough Whitlam came to power, Bill Hayden became Minister for Social Security and brought in the nation's first universal health insurance scheme, Medibank. He also introduced pensions for single mothers. But the government was racked by scandals and poor administration. In 1975, the Whitlam government was on the brink of dismissal by Sir John Kerr. Bill Hayden had been treasurer for five months. The economy was a mess. And famously, Bill Hayden said, presenting his first budget speech, that the nation had to learn that it couldn't get quarts out of pint pots. Now, sadly, few Australians would know what that meant. But in the old metric, two pints, as in a pint of beer, two pints equaled one quart. So Bill Hayden's point was that you can't get quarts out of pint pots because a quart is two pints, won't fit into a pint pot. That means you shouldn't spend what you haven't got. I was there at the time. The Hayden budget looked as if it could restore public faith in the Whitlam government. The Fraser opposition rejected it and the constitutional crisis was resolved with the sacking of the Whitlam government. In the landslide that followed, Bill Hayden was the only Labor MP left in Queensland. He fashioned the party which returned to power under Bob Hawke in 1983. As Paul Keating rightly said in a brilliant eulogy at St Mary's Catholic Church in Bill's eventual hometown of Ipswich, 30 kilometres southwest of Brisbane, and I quote Paul Keating, Bill's re-establishment of federal labour as a real and genuine force is without doubt the crowning achievement of his long public life. Said Mr Keating, quote, we may see the likes of Bill Hayden again, but I doubt it. I've known a lot of, my, of politicians in my time. Bill Hayden was a genuine, dedicated and decent human being, rising from a virtually impoverished family background to become a formidable national political figure. Well, at about the same time that the Labor family were honouring and remembering Bill Hayden, New South Wales's longest serving Labor leader, Bob Carr, was on his annual pilgrimage to the theatres, museums and art galleries of Europe with his wonderful wife, Helena. I knew them both very well. Returning from the opera in Vienna, Helena complained of back pain to Bob, and before he knew it, she'd collapsed in his arms with her life there and then virtually snatched away. In a foreign city, Bob got Helena to hospital and the scans revealed the worst, a brain aneurysm. Bob had to approve the machines being turned off. He had lost the love of his life. They'd been together for 50 years. Bob returned home at the weekend with Helena's ashes. To most of us, it's all incomprehensible. To Bob Carr, it opens another chapter in his life with which he's totally unfamiliar, a life without his soul mate. Bob enjoyed extraordinary and unprecedented success as a politician, the 39th Premier of New South Wales for 10 years, the Australian Foreign Affairs Minister for two years. No one had served a longer consecutive term as Premier of New South Wales than Bob Carr. But behind it all was a highly intelligent, dedicated, loyal and politically astute wife, Helena. She never commanded the limelight, never sought recognition. But one thing is certain, without Helena, Bob Carr would never have achieved what he achieved politically with Helena by his side. There's no doubt that the Labor family and friends of Bob and Helena will join in a requiem mass for Helena at St Mary's Cathedral next Tuesday, November 14 at 10.30 a.m. 
but from totally different perspectives of the Labor Party, two outstanding servants are dearly departed, Bill Hayden and Helena Carr. That's it from me tonight. Don't forget you can listen to the podcast from tonight's program from 6am tomorrow. Just go to the podcast app and search ADH TV. You can also email me at alanjones at adh.tv. I read all your emails. I have to tell you, you are my best researchers. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. I am Alan Jones. Good night.